This production is brought to you by When I say sex work, what comes to mind? What feeling stirs in you? Maybe it conjures a curiosity, maybe an unease or discomfort, or maybe it makes you blush. Known famously as the world's oldest profession, the work itself has stayed something of a secret in the effort to secure safety for those within it. Safety from the vague and complex laws around it, safety from the violence of both those repelled by it and those who take advantage of it, and safety from the stigma by society that aims to induce shame for anyone under this red umbrella. When I say sex work, what do you think that work looks like, feels like? Let's erase the opinion you've formed from what you've seen in movies or the dangerously biased news media. Let's get the truth of this work. Today, we're talking all things escorting with a profession that you most likely associate with sex work. Joining me to answer the questions you've submitted are industry professionals, Liara and Kayla. The Red Umbrella became the global symbol for sex worker rights in 2001 when it was carried through the streets of Venice in protest against the abuse experienced by their community. Shot here in the heart of New York City on location at the Museum of Sex, I'm Laura Desiree and this is Red Umbrella Talk. The following discussion on the profession known as escorting features questions submitted by you, the general public, via email and social media. First and foremost, I want to say thank you to both of you for joining in on this discussion. Anyone who has spent any time within sex work, it's not the kind of conversation that you necessarily have when cameras are rolling and the lights are on. So thank you for being here today. Thank you. I'm really excited to uh, get to these questions. Obviously, it's quite a mysterious and secretive business, and that's for the purpose of safety. What I would like to hear from both of you is a little bit of your experience in this business, how many years you've been doing it, and uh, perhaps your description on the kind of service you provide. Can we begin with you, Liara? Yeah, so I've been in the industry a little years now. Um, I started doing pretty traditional hourly escorting service, and now I've moved into a more arrangement, almost sugar daddy type structure, which I personally prefer. I also wrote a book, Whore of New York. Some of you may have heard of it. Yeah, I love doing all the different fun things. I also do a little bit of porn, so it's like a... It is a fantastic read. Congratulations on the book. It's it's raw, it's unflinching, it's beautiful, it's it's what's necessary. Thank so, you so much. Thank you. And Kayla, yourself, could we get the origin story, a little bit of your background? Well, I started eight years ago um, when I was actually in high school, so kind of early, and I was just escorting, so I would consider what I do just full-service sex work, but I also offer kind of a girlfriend experience. So it's a lot of dates and, you know, spending quality time and companionship and things like that. Wow, really getting to know people. Yeah, exactly. Wow, well, let's, uh, let's jump into these. You ready? Mm-hmm. 
First question uh, on the board here, how would you define sex work? That's such a good question. I think, in my opinion, it's anything where the service you're providing is something that people are getting off on explicitly. So anything from stripping to being a pro-dom, porn stars, or full-service sex workers. I think that's like a pretty standard spectrum. But then there's also, you know, gray areas like someone working at Hooters. Mm -hmm. Some people might consider that sex work. Others might not. Cam work, cyber oh, sex work online. That's, yeah. that's seen a huge boom just through the pandemic uh, totally. alone, right? Yeah. Kayla, does uh, your definition waver from that at all? Pretty much. Um, I don't... Even if they don't get off, if it's just sexual in nature, but again, then Hooters, I mean, yeah. I don't consider people who work at Hooters sex workers, mm -hmm. but there are people who do. Well, let's, let's proceed then. How did you decide to get into this line of work? What were any initial hesitations? I first thought about doing it when I was in college and dealing with student loans and everything, uh, but my partner at the time was really not into the idea so I waited until I was working in tech um, and I really hated my job hated my boss I decided why not be my own boss I had a friend who was working as a pro dom she really loved it like every time we would hang out she would just tell me all these cool stories and I was just like all right I'm gonna try it see if it's for me and I loved it as you're making this decision in your mind to step into this business did you ever say to yourself, this is what's holding me back from it. I don't know if I could follow through. Were there any of those hesitations that you kind of had to simmer on? I think for me, showing my face was a big concern or even, you know, putting my ad up on Eros instead of just being on Seeking Arrangement. It was, you know, so public. But eventually I decided that I wouldn't want to work for any large company that wasn't fundamentally okay with sex work. And so it was a very conscious decision that I made to filter out anyone who would have those types of prejudices. And you were young at this, at this point. You're still young. But this was, you know, a, a young person taking this, this decision to pursue this path. Mm -hmm. it, says, it says incredible volumes about uh, self-reliance and mm -hmm. the pursuit and ambition. Amazing. Kayla, yourself. How'd you get into this? What, what, what was a hesitation for you as well? I, again, was in high school and, you know, I was always really horny and a friend of mine told me that I should be a stripper and I was looking up strip clubs and then I came across escort advertisements because, you know, I guess they're kind of related in a sense. <laughs> and I was just, I, I just, I felt in my body, I was like, this is it. Like, I'm about to get paid to have sex. That's it. Like. Um, I had no hesitations, to be very honest with you. Wow. So much of the world would say, oh my gosh, like I, I don't know if I could pull it off. I don't know how I'd feel if people found out. And to just say, no, I, I, I knew this was my calling. Yeah, I kind of just went in. I don't know. And I was, I was also very open about it, like with my peers. Not my family yet mm -hmm. to that point, which I am now. I believe we do have a question about... Um, I guess, revealing that to family and friends. So that'll be coming up. Stay tuned, everyone. We have a question here about how do you price yourself? Are rates agreed upon by the industry as a whole? How do you look to put together that menu? I started out just pricing myself in line with, uh, with what other people seem to be charging. And then when I would get too busy, 
and I would raise my rates to the point where I was working at a level that felt comfortable to me. So my rates have just gone up mm. as I've gotten busier. Is there is there pushback or any strange negotiation that happens with clients that say, wait, why are these rates going up? Or do you keep them grandfathered? I don't keep them grandfathered. Um, I think for me, it's about respect for my time, you know. I think maybe if there was a client I really loved who genuinely couldn't afford it, I would grandfather them in. But even my clients that are more like working class, um, they just save up a little longer, mm. which I really appreciate it. I feel like it's a it's a sign of respect. I mean, you you build up time in the business. Yeah. Right, Kayla. Yourself, how did you learn about pricing and and start to put that together? I really would just look up other beautiful black women who looked somewhat similar to me or comparable in a sense, and then looked at what they were charging and then went with that. And then as my experience, as I had longer in the industry and as I learned how to look better, I obviously kept raising it and raising it. And when I get a new body, I'm going to raise it again. Ooh, ooh. <laughs> Is it like an annual thing that you look to renew or refresh those prices? Would you say it's as regular as an annual uh, reevaluation for me it might even be month to month you know if I have a really intense month where I'm working way too much mm -hmm. then I'll just raise my rates after that amazing control you're able to have right mm -hmm. yeah how do you protect yourself from STIs seems basic right but uh, I think the people want to know what safety precautions are taken including uh, every kind of interaction whether it's the blowjobs whether it's you know the the full penetrative sex, where are those measures along the way? So for me, when I started, I uh, used a cover for everything except oral on me, um, even during blowjobs. Um, but I don't know if you, either of you are familiar with the site, the erotic review, I'm sure you are. But eventually they introduced this new policy where they were like, if you don't give an uncovered blowjob, then you'll get lower ratings. Like it was impossible to get like a 10 out of 10 or something, I think. Which to me was wildly irresponsible. Yeah. So I started doing uncovered blowjobs after that. But I'm also on prep, yeah. um, very anal retentive about condom use. I use female condoms too, which I personally feel like because there's more surface area covered, it gives a little extra protection. And I get tested every three months. And for people that are maybe hearing about PrEP for the first time, um, we actually didn't even get to it in our porn episode. I'm, I'm shocked. Could you let them know PrEP and, and why that's a part of your world? So PrEP, uh, the PrEP I take is Truvada, and it's a pill uh, that was developed to actually treat HIV, but they've found that it can also prevent infections in the first place. So I take it just in case a condom breaks or, you know, anything happens where I might um, encounter someone who's positive just gives me extra peace of mind. I Absolutely. think it's like 99.9% .9 effective, so. Yeah. The advancements that we have in, in the medical world in that regard are incredible and I can't wait to see them continue, but PrEP is a revolution. Totally. Kayla, what about yourself when it comes to STIs? How are you sure you're being as safe as possible? Well, like you said, when I first started, I was also giving covered blowjobs, but then, um, well, I started on Backpage, mm -hmm. and then as my rates went up, I realized that's just not the norm mm -hmm. at all. 
And also, I wanted to say that on that review site, if you don't do anal, you can't get a 10 either. Oh, yeah. I think they changed that after I got myself taken off. Oh, okay. Yeah, I heard. Yeah. But I've heard about that. That's so disgusting. Yeah, yeah, and like not everybody wants it anyway. That's 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 a little much. Yeah. <laughs> Let's be honest. So I also take PrEP and I also got a gar Gardasil. Do you know the vaccine? Yeah, PV that's the HPV the vaccination. HPV vaccination. Oh, yeah. I also have that. Yeah, yeah. I, I know that it's most effective when you get it at a young age, but they they still recommend that you get it either way. I use condoms for penetrative sex and just um, try to do like a visual look yeah. thing, see if there's any clear breakouts. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, one of the questions was we haven't even flipped to it yet, but I'm remembering it right now was when you are about to get intimate with a client and you do notice something. Maybe it's a visual thing or a, a smell or what do you do in that moment? If it's a smell, I usually tell them as gently as possible. They got to get back in there and clean up a little bit more. <laughs> um, but yeah, if it's something visual, usually I'll just ask them about it. I've gotten pretty good at this point at identifying when something is a scar, when it's something that could potentially be problematic. I feel like I've gotten pretty good at having these non-confrontational STI discussions. Right, right, which should be so normalized in our society, yeah, you know, especially when it's something noticeable, just to put it out there in the open and say, let's talk about this, like, come on. Same thing, like, yeah. you can, again, I've gotten good at, like, telling, you know, what's a skin tag and what's a wart, mm. per se, but, I mean, if there is a breakout, then I would ask them, I, I, I wouldn't continue. I'm, yeah. I feel bad about saying that, but... You're looking out for yourself. Yeah, yeah. but I, I wouldn't be, like, um, judgmental or anything about it. I think, you know, 80% of people have herpes 1, so... Yeah, just tell them to take a, one of the antiviral treatments that they have now. Maybe give them a little bit of education. Yeah. But then there's also other ways to play if yeah. you want to make it safe. Totally. So... Mm-hmm. And that's the, the magic and the brilliance of sex workers. They, there's always <laughs> another way to create, convey, and make that pleasure happen. Oh, yeah. Is there a characteristic or personality trait that connects all of your clients? Is there a certain type of person that you find gravitates to you? Or is everyone just random? I guess for me, it's very like kind people mm. that I feel like I end up seeing the most. And I tried to make my branding very specifically about you know, having a nice, like, grounding, emotionally connected experience, uh, which I think really resonated with people. But other than that, they come from all backgrounds. Like, I have people who, you know, are plumbers or electricians, all the way up to, you know, billionaire tech boys. I like that it's kindness that <laughs> seems to weave them all yeah, together. It's important. No kidding. Kayla, what about yourself? Is there a weaving theme in your clients? I don't think so. I did notice something interesting. When I worked with straight hair, mm -hmm. I was getting mostly older white men, and a lot of them were Republicans. Oh. <laughs> and then I came back with locks, and oh. I have not really been getting that anymore. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting, yeah. but I would say I can't think of a common characteristic, honestly. They seem like regular men. Well, was there anything specific about the kind of sex they wanted to have? In that, in that look and in that presentation when my hair yourself? was straight? Or Just not? Republican white men. I would love to know what they're doing these days. <laughs> they love anal. Is that right? Whenever uh, I would go to Texas, yeah. that was always when I was 
doing the most really anal bookings where yeah they like they don't want to do anal on me they want me to wear a strap on and fuck them up the ass wow what a reverse of power huh Mm -hmm. very repressed we've got a, a question on how if you can identify how many of your clients are married versus unmarried and if their sexual needs differ as well a single person a married person I would say maybe 50-50, married versus single. The single clients that I have often want more emotional care. Mm. They're like, they have this more like thirsty, needy energy, um, which is really sweet. And, you know, just want to like soothe them a little bit. I feel like uh, my married clients often just want something easy and fun, most like friends with benefits. A lot of them still really love their wives. And I think, you know, I get a lot of questions about, you know, whether the wives hate me or something. I'm like, probably some of them do, but I think a lot of them are just at the point where they're like, I don't want to fuck you. Like, we have kids together. Like, we've seen too much of each other. And I'm happy you're getting it somewhere. Yeah, exactly. Right? (laughs) Kayla, are you able to identify a difference in married and married? Absolutely. Um, the single ones, it's you'll go out on more dates or maybe travel. Married men, they oftentimes are scared to go outside with you. And it may be more sex related, like if they haven't had sex for a long time with their wives. There's a big difference, but of course, that's not always the case. Hey, if you ever have another, I guess, hypothesis on that, just bring it up. I, I, I'm fascinated by that one. What's the safest way to find clients, what is your vetting process? What's included on that? I like having clients email me all of their information. Um, I screen them, look them up on all the blacklisting sites. And when I meet them in person too, I check their ID so that Mm. I can tell that everything matches what they've given me. Right, so these blacklisting sites are still active. These are lists that workers are contributing names to mm-hmm. to alert the rest of the industry yeah i really like your id check idea that's yeah. <laughs> i always thought i Keeps should them do in that line. but i just yeah. never did it so thank you i do the same thing i have they can either send their linkedin or some company profile and then email a fake email that i made that's unlisted mm-hmm. and then from their work email address or they can send id or i still take references from other providers who like I can verify their identities yeah that's and then also look them up on the blacklists and whatnot how do you set your boundaries with a client when it comes to the physicality or even the emotional toll of it I always try really hard to be polite but firm and I think sex work has actually really taught me a lot about how to really set a boundary in a way that the other person can tell it's not about them or something they should take personally. It's just my rules. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a delicate balance to be firm, but gentle, and still a little playful almost so that everyone feels at ease and they don't feel personally rejected. There's also the reality of their boundaries mm-hmm. as well. Although this is not necessarily BDSM or, or professional domination situations, but do you also look to know their boundaries before you engage in play? Usually we don't have an explicit discussion, um, but I try to pay attention to their body language, see what they're responding to, or if they start to seem uncomfortable, and I might start a conversation about it if it seems like they're starting to freeze or Mm -hmm. get in their head at all. Again, life skills that we should all be applying to intimate interactions regardless. 
Kayla, <laughs> yourself, uh, how do you go about setting boundaries with a client? So I also want to agree with what you said. Um, escorting has really, really helped me become so great with my boundaries. And I feel like people sometimes even well into their 70s are not great at communicating their boundaries. For us to learn that at such a young age, and especially as women, I think we can definitely thank escorting, at least in part, for that. Mm -hmm. I would just say, usually I say something in like a, a playful but serious way, like, oh no, we don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's dangerous. You have like a little look in your eye. Yeah. Like, but like, nice, but. Yeah, exactly. So in a playful way. And then of course, if it continues, then you can say it, then I would say it more seriously. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I've had a couple clients who came in and then they were not ready to get started yet. Like they needed some more time to warm up. And then instead of making them like a scared cat, I'll be like, so can I, or, you know, I'm, think I want to or you know what I mean just mm -hmm. like in a playful way so in that way it's kind of like testing out their boundaries and what they're ready to do in that moment but otherwise I kind of just like to go with the flow and again read their body language mm, love that how do you travel with a client and keep your personal information protected names credit cards passports the whole shebang of our private life if a client and I aren't on that level yet, there are some clients who I do eventually share my details with just because if you are traveling internationally together a certain amount, then if you don't trust them with that information, I would say, you know, don't go to, you know, a place like Morocco or something mm -hmm. together where, you know, or Japan or somewhere where like the place can be intense. I just uh, book my own tickets. Mm -hmm. um, I have a suitcase that locks, so I just keep it locked all the time, keep my documents inside. and But yeah. get the money up front yeah. or, or get the money for the ticket afterwards. Yeah. One of the big things that I had to learn was taking the bag tags off um, ah. after you fly because otherwise they can just check that and see everything. There's like so many little, little details you have to keep track of. Absolutely. Yeah, our identification can kind of show up everywhere, especially in travel. Mm -hmm. We've got all these documents, tickets, things that reveal that. Or like the yeah. hotels that now like oh show my your God, that name happened on the, the other TV. day. Oh. <laughs> I, was, I was like, look over there and turn the TV off. I have them send me the money for the tickets mm -hmm. first and then book it myself. And I will have my ID on me, of course, because some places check ID like when you're actually in that location with them. But anything else, like cards, I try to like hide it in either my bag or I think you should always have maybe a card with you, but or at least cash. But I would try to hide it and just keep a lookout for anything that might have your name on it. But yeah, that's a great question. And it's you never know. When you travel, you end up saying your own name so many times and yeah. or your name. And they can gets say it out loud you. because yes. they have no reason to think that, you know. Right, right. I'm going to want both of your thoughts on this one. How do pimps fit into the equation in the 21st century? Kayla, do you want to? I actually, the very, the first two or three times that I did it, I was with a pimp. But I, I was already looking to start, so I kind of just stumbled upon them, and I was like, oh, good, like, I'll learn. Pimps are obviously still around, um, and I want to just give a PSA that there is kind of a one-sided or very stigmatized view of people who can be considered pimps. Like, of course, there is the stereotypical pimp who's very abusive and exploitative, but that is not always the case. And like, for example, when I first started, I helped a girl out and like she gave me a little bit for letting her use my room. Mm -hmm. Technically, 
yeah. that can be considered like mm -hmm. people can get arrested for that. Mm -hmm. Or for example, if we, if I had a friend drive me to a hotel and gave them some money, people get arrested for trafficking for that. Mm -hmm. So there's just a lot of misinformation surrounding it and um, just not all pimps are bad, but some are. When you get to street work, people might think, you know, all pimps are bad and like mm -hmm. it's stupid to get a pimp. But if you are a street worker, which is the most dangerous form of sex work, mm -hmm. I can completely empathize with wanting to feel the safety of having a pimp nearby. Now, whether or not they turn out to be abusive or just a regular person who you're in a business partnership with, we don't know because we can't judge that until we know that relationship. But it absolutely makes sense. Like, I'm four foot 11. Like, I would want somebody watching me, and hopefully, they were actually keeping me safe in some way. We do have a question about who you would go to in danger, which yeah. is coming up. Um, but Liara, thoughts on pimps fitting into the 21st century? Yeah, so when I started, um, my partner was my pimp. And I didn't see it that way at the time. I think because I was so young, I just, it was easy to manipulate. Um, but they you know, were in control of the finances. They were pushing me to work more than I wanted to. And I realized that I was being exploited and that that this person who, you know, I really trusted was taking advantage of me. But again, it's a lot more nuanced than, you know, the stereotypical image of a pimp. You know, they, there was never like physical violence or anything, but it was they were at once the person who was keeping me safe and also hurting me in some ways. You speak of it so openly in your book mm. about that dynamic. And so anyone that may be curious a little bit more, I would say definitely pick up the book, pick up Horror of New York. Mm. Thank you. Agencies versus pimps versus managers versus... Agencies are pimps. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a pretty name on it but you know and they might be a little bit more inflexible with certain details because you know you've got a lot of people working under that name of that agency so I would imagine there's a little less fuckery that can be conducted but oh there can be plenty of fuckery mm -hmm. with agencies yeah I've heard I've heard some pretty wild stories at least where I started in the Bay Area there was a lot of very chaotic agencies with Questionable people. But for people who are completely in the, the unknown of, of how to navigate mm -hmm. this industry. It can make a lot of sense to partner with an agency, you know, and depending on the cut they take, it can make a lot of sense. You don't have to pay for photos. You don't have to pay for a website. You don't have to pay for ads. Um, you don't have to pay for someone to manage your emails or your mm -hmm. scheduling for you. And so it can be really convenient, especially for someone who's doing it more as a part-time gig instead of full-time. I have a lot of friends who started out that way, and I don't think they regret it at all. They just eventually wanted to keep all the money for themselves. Yeah. <laughs> that goes. Yeah. Yeah. Who do you go to if you are in danger or hurt? I have a lot of friends that I have on a little list, and I can just go through them, you know, and someone will pick up. Not always the same person, but yeah, it's about building that safety network. Then absolutely, yeah. Kayla. If there was a situation where I felt uncomfortable, I would immediately text my sister, mm -hmm. one of my sisters, 
and just tell her where I am and what's going on. And then, you know, I'll, I'll check back in with you when the situation has died down. But at least if she doesn't hear back from me, then she'll have an idea of a lead of a lead of some kind. Um, I would not go to the police because I, one, it's criminalized. Two, there are just way too many instances where sex workers have gone to police and ended up arrested or like they leaving more traumatized than when they went in. So police also have a history of raping mm -hmm. sex workers. So there's that. Really need to work on that, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's so funny. Yeah. The calling the police did not even pop into yeah, the mind. I just mind when answering would be like the last thing. I, would. I literally never called the police, would never. Like when I pass by cops on the street, it's just like, horrifying experience mm. um yeah i don't know and i feel like for people who are not sex workers if you tell them as a sex worker that something happened that might be their first thing like oh my god yeah. why don't you gotta go to the police like whoa oh, <laughs> absolutely no, no, not no. that is not the answer right. why didn't you call the cops yeah <sighs> i mean if if i were raped i would immediately go to like um an urgent care or an yeah. emergency room do a rape kit and have them give me some preemptive medicine you can do that like if a condom breaks even, they yeah. can give you something to prevent chlamydia or gonorrhea from even forming. Mm -hmm. And then while you're there, you might as well get tested. So yeah. yeah, that's it. What are the red flags in a potential client? Whether it's someone you're still in the vetting process with or someone you're in communication with before the, uh, the appointment itself, what would be some of those red flags? Someone's emailing too much, you know. They send an email, and then 30 minutes later, they're like, why didn't you respond to my email? I see you on Twitter tweeting away. Oh, God. Which is, like, the most annoying thing. Wow. It's like, Twitter is a part of the job, man. You know, I can't respond immediately to everything. Especially, it's like sometimes they'll be talking about booking three months out. But, yeah, any sort of, like, entitlement, you know, demanding that I wear a certain thing mm. or act a certain way or that any kind of booking be a certain way. It's just like an immediate turn off, you know? I think I'm such a particular personality that I'm like, I do not do well with people that are gonna try to order me around whatsoever. Mm. So it's better to just head that off at the past. Right, that's, that's, you're not gonna pass this step at this point, that's that. I would say trying not to send screening information. The uh, minute yeah. the minute you tell me that you can't screen, you've already screened yourself out. Like yeah. that's it. Thank you. <laughs> so that's one. Definitely sending a lot of emails or just sometimes people just write in a way that's like this is not going to be fun for me. I had someone 2 days ago send me a, an ID that was so clearly fake. I was like <laughs> Like Photoshop. It was it was so bad. I was like, oh come on, and then I had the nerve to email me and and ask and follow up. Right? Did you receive my Photoshop? Yeah, I image? got your fake ID. I wow. got it. <laughs> um, oh boy. So yeah, you know, just little little red flags. Yeah. Um, there's little things in people's there are small things in people's communication patterns that you can pick up on. I think you get an intuition after a while. So yeah, yeah these incredible minute details. I mean, we think of the FBI as the, the utmost interrogators with the most incredible psychological powers to, to unearth the details of a human. Talk to sex workers. They need some sex workers. Their lives aren't on the line. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Yeah, when you have to be in a room alone with someone bigger and stronger than you, you very quickly learn how to judge the emails. Yeah.
And then I feel like in boundary pushers and people with red flags, I do think that there are some patterns. Mm -hmm. Like I feel like they do have a lot of similarities. Like yeah. they're the always ones who I've met in person, especially when I first started, they would just like, there's always something. And I'm like, ugh. Again. And what do you do at that point when you're like, oh, here we go. I'm already in this. Yeah. I just try to power through. <laughs> yeah. It depends. And be safe Run the clock down. Just try to be safe, not offend them because people can have short fuses, mm -hmm. especially boundary pushers. So, um, and then of course, if they are actually pushing a boundary, I will ask them to leave in a way that I hope is not going to set them off. So it's actually really delicate and tricky and I think it's an acquired skill that is really important. Oh, someone is asking, what are the signs of trafficking? What and how is the best place to report it? I don't know if there's a necessarily best place to report it. Unfortunately, a lot of the law enforcement agencies from you know, local police departments to FBI, they arrest sex workers and they arrest sex workers even if they're being trafficked or even just trafficking victims who are completely in the industry involuntarily they'll send them to prison there are very few organizations that actually do the very hard work of helping trafficking survivors a lot of them just send them directly to the police even if they say otherwise it's a really unfortunate situation that so much of the money that should be spent to take care of women and queer people and whoever else ends up being trafficked, that it instead goes to ridiculous campaigns to criminalize our entirely consensual work. Well said. Well said. Kayla, any thoughts on that signs of signs of trafficking, how to potentially spot it? Uh, maybe if you're looking to secure time with a sex worker, is it something that uh, you can notice through an advertisement, through someone's social media? I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. And I just wanted to say one more thing based off of what you said. Please. Another thing about reporting trafficking is that Lucy on the street, she might just be reporting a guy and a girl and they might be a sex worker. Do you know how many black men have had the cops called on them because they were with a little white girl and they mm -hmm. thought that she, he must be a pimp or, you know, so, and then of course, once the police are involved, it can, he could get killed or it just, it's, it sucks because it's almost like, what do you do? And then we have SESTA-FOSTA, which made trafficking go up and it's so, it's, it's really shitty. I wish I had an answer for that question, but I don't. Yeah. Yeah. There should and be I, a good answer. Yeah. Um, I think they definitely need to repeal SESTA FOSTA. And absolutely. we definitely, like, if you want to, to help mitigate the mitigate trafficking, then you need decrim of sex work. Mm -hmm. You have to. Otherwise, if you're pushing it underground, that's where people are more vulnerable. Right. And vulnerable people are more likely to be trafficked. The, the entirety of, of SESTA FOSTA. I mean, of course, if you present this piece of legislature to a room and say, hey, we're going to combat sex trafficking and child pornography, who the hell, who the fuck is going to argue that? Exactly. No one's going to argue that. When in the fine print, what it's doing is, is taking away, of course, the, the constitutional right of free speech, but it's also pushing anyone with any kind of uh, sexual evidence online, it's, it's shutting them out. It's dangerous stuff. Yeah. Does voluntary sex work contribute to sex trafficking? What does the industry do 
to mitigate or reduce trafficking. Backpage used to actually have an incredible program where whenever they saw someone who looked like they might be uh, being trafficked, mm. they would report it to a particular organization that did actually do their best to help help people that were in um, terrible situations. And the truth of the matter is, I think sex workers ourselves are the best at helping people. So many of us have been trafficked, and that's how we ended up in the industry in the first place. I think it's really, really important um, to have decrims so that people can speak more freely about why they're in the industry and also you know, people who are being trafficked um, have an easier time standing up for themselves. A lot of like the more abusive, dangerous pimps will tell girls, if you talk to anyone about this, you'll just end up in prison, which unfortunately is really common and true. So I think decrim is a really important step. And I think sex workers are some of the most active anti-child pornography and anti-sex trafficking advocates that there are really absolutely yeah yeah i want to thank you both so much for being here to answer these questions and and share your life your perspective your wisdom with us today this was very special very sacred thank you thank you so much Thank you for having us. And everyone watching, listening, consuming, I hope you learned something today. Uh, I hope that you formed a new opinion, a new understanding, let's call it. And of course, the production team here at Red Umbrella has made a contribution to one of our favorite foundations, the wonderful folks over at the Sex Workers Project. Hope you enjoyed listening to this one. We'll see you back here real soon.